and welcome to How She Really Does It. You are tuned to KDRT LP in Davis, California, 101.5 FM. I've always been interested in human interest stories and other people's journeys. And through the years, I've sought out mentors and resources, and now I'm sharing them with you. This talk show is meant to inspire, empower, entertain, and be a resource for women. How She Really Does It provides an opportunity for women to learn so that they can empower their own lives. You can contact me, Karen Motokaitis, at howshe at gmail.com or visit our website for past shows at www.howshereallydoesit.com. The Omega Institute for Holistic Studies is the largest adult learning center in the world. We have the co-founder of the Omega Institute, Elizabeth Lesser, here today. For the past 30 years, she has studied and worked with leading figures in the field of healing, healing self and healing society. Since 2002, she and Eve Insler, most of you probably remember her from V-Day, have spearheaded Omega's and V-Day's Women in Power Conferences, electrifying dialogues between women, activists, artists, and those in leadership positions around the world. Elizabeth is the author of The Seeker's Guide and Broken Open, How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow. And most recently, she hosted A New Earth, The After Show on the Oprah Winfrey's Oprah and Friends radio channel. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. Glad to be with you. I'm glad that you can make it today. So you have a very interesting journey to where you are now and where you started out. Um, would you mind filling up, giving some background information to our listeners first about your own personal journey to how you got here? Sure. Um, well, I was a little kid in the 1950s, and then I was a teenager at the end of the 1960s and beginning of the 70s, and it was such a um, potent time in American history for women who wanted to make change and for people who were interested in breaking out of what the status quo culture was in the day. And um, I was one of those kids who got on that train and never got off. I was early on really involved in feminism and the anti-war movement. And um, then when I was in college, I began to become disillusioned with the uh, anger and and violence in in certainly in the anti-war and civil rights movements, and also a sense of um, stridency in the women's movement. And I got very interested in spirituality. It was also a time when many of the first Eastern teachers of meditation and yoga were showing up in America. And I went out and got myself one of them, uh, <laughs> a spiritual teacher, and um, became deeply involved in a path of meditation and um, an exploration of the world's religions. And I had grown up in a very um, unreligious household, a very political household, and one that equated, if you were interested in spirituality, then there was something kind of uh, soft in the head about you. So um, this was a real departure for me from my childhood to suddenly be involved in a spiritual group. And my teacher was the one who had the idea to start a learning center for adults where people could learn about different spiritual traditions, but also about other things that were burgeoning in the society in the 70s, like holistic health and natural foods um, and cross-cultural arts. These all may sound like ho-hum today, but back then uh, it was seen as really kind of um, either really esoteric and weird or exotic. And so in 1977, a bunch of us students of my teacher, two of us in particular, uh, were put in charge of this idea to start a holistic learning center meaning offering workshops and trainings by authors and speakers from around the world who were exploring new ways of um, searching for the sacred or healing the body or dealing psychologically with our stuff. And that's how Omega Institute started. And over the 30 years now of the organization growing, I've been able to bring my two lifelong passions together, which is spirituality, and also 
social, a social consciousness, a desire to change the world um, for women and for all people, uh, so to bring healing to both the self and society. So that's my story in a nutshell. Wow. And how, how um, fabulous it is to be able to live your passion and pursue it and to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, so many people, um, you know, we're just out there and going through life and or doing what we're supposed to be doing, you know, having, and, you know, one of the things that the show really focuses on is our people that are focusing on their passions or are, are doing things that are outside the box, which starting the Omega Institute was definitely outside of the box. Yes. I've, I really have in many ways never lived inside the box. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, especially when my kids were young, I would think, Oh, my goodness, these poor guys, they've never lived inside the box. They've had such a strange childhood growing up on this campus where the world's teachers come and they're just as comfortable with a West African drummer as they are with their public school, elementary school teacher. And and I often worried, was I given, giving them too odd a childhood? But, of course, they look back on it with with great fondness because they got to uh, experience the world in their backyard. And it, isn't that nice? I think so much about parenthood and parenting is about not, you know, we're all, there's always all these questions. Am I doing it right? Am I not? And sometimes it's nice to look back and say, well, it, it worked out, those worries, yeah. you know, and um, I think sometimes some of our fears are based on the unknown instead of, you know, living in the now and being present and saying we're doing this and and, and being present and, and also pain, that being in tune with what's going on within ourselves and our children. Yeah, it's the hardest thing is to do this as a parent. I think that tested me so much because you want to do you want to do right by them mm-hmm. so so desperately, and um, it's such a wilderness. Just when you think you have the hang of of raising <laughs> a little kid, then suddenly they're in school, and then and it never stops changing, and you got to keep changing with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember when my kids were really little. They're eight and six right now, but when they're really, really little, I thought, okay, I've got this down. Yeah, and then they would change. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, no. I mean, parenting has definitely been the hardest thing I've had to do and to learn. Mm -hmm. So and so prior to starting the Omega Institute, though, you also because when I was reading your book, when you were first had gone to the the commune or you guys had bought that farmland Mm -hmm. on the Shaker property, I believe that's that's what I thought was the beginning of the Omega Institute. But it wasn't. Well, um Back in the day when I was studying with my teacher, it was a time when um, a lot of American kids, and, and I was a kid, I was 19 when I met him, my teacher, um, there was this desire to go back to the land and learn how to live off the land and raise your own food and build your own houses and deliver your own babies, and, and that's what we did. We created this community. And that is where Omega Institute was incubated. Um, very soon after its founding, uh, we left the community and took Omega, and, and it became its own entity and had very little relationship anymore to where it was founded. But that is where it started, um, and that that's... Um, informs what it is, but it, it actually is now its own entity. Wow. And so we're, how do you, what do you think of now, because spirituality and um, is, is becoming more of our mainstream culture. And what are your thoughts about that? Because it is, it, it's not so, um, um, it's not so esoteric mm-hmm. anymore. Well, to some extent, spirituality has always been part of every culture. It just comes dressed in different clothes all the time throughout history if you study history, and it's so important to study history so we don't think that uh, who we are as a people now is all that radically different from what the human experience has always been. From the beginning of time, humans have asked 
very basic perennial questions. Who am I? Where do I go when I die? What is my purpose here on this very brief experience on this beautiful planet? How do I relate to other people in a way that uh, gets me what I want but gives them what they want too? These are, are deep, abiding questions. And if you look at the premise of all the world's religions, they all come out of that questioning. Who am I? Where do I go when I die? How do I live best here in my time on Earth? So those questions have never gone away. The way humans search for them changes over time. And I think what's going on now is that just as everything humans do are be is becoming one big global family, we are becoming a global tribe and not so much little tribes uh, disconnected through space. Um, what with technology and the shrinking of the planet and the movement of all the peoples, and you just look at America, how the diversity and democracy has changed what we eat and the music we play and the languages we speak. Um, spirituality is changing in that way, too. You can walk down almost any American town and you'll find a yoga center, which comes from India, and uh, you can find meditation being taught in your local Y or introduced into a hospital for stress reduction. So uh, it's no longer just, I'm a Catholic or mm -hmm. I'm a Jew. You can be a Jew and a meditator, a Catholic and a yogi. Uh, we're mixing it up the way we've mixed everything up in America and now the world. So I think this idea of a universal spirituality is becoming part of the norm. But spirituality has always been with us. Well, and that was something that reading your book, The Seeker's Guide, that I really appreciated because you there are so many different um, teachers out there and there's so many different philosophies. And what I gathered from reading your book was it was about figuring out what works for you. Right. Not, not following, and, and that's, I guess, how when we talk about Ameri the new American spirit spirituality versus the old mm -hmm. and, the, and the changes. And, and that's hard for some people to accept. You know, I just um, had a, a wonderful experience where I was helping Oprah create a curriculum um, for her website uh, around the teachings of a man named Eckhart Tolle who wrote two wonderful books, The Power of Now and A New Earth. And Oprah chose... A New Earth for her book club. Mm -hmm. It was the first nonfiction book that she had chosen, and she chose a very sophisticated mm -hmm. and, in many ways, difficult read in Eckhart Tolle's book, A New Earth. And the response was huge. So many people were interested that she thought, well, I'll create a 10-week uh, online discussion between me and the author for each of the 10 chapters, and Every Monday night, Eckhart Tolle flew to Chicago to talk with Oprah, and I helped them create this curriculum. And every week, 1.5 million people tuned in for this conversation. So obviously, there's this huge desire, but at the same time, there was a little bit of a backlash from mm -hmm. people who were involved in a Christian path or other organized religions in this country since... Christianity is the primary religion. Um, a lot of the complaints were from that religion that um, what you asked me before, what you liked in my book about how we can choose our path, people were upset about that, like there's only one path, there's only one way, and it's already written in the book, so there's nothing to choose <laughs> and no form fitting. You mm -hmm. do it this way or you don't do it. And with all due respect, to people who believe that way, I just think that we've grown out of that headset, that as we become one world community, we get to respect and even enjoy the many different flavors of the spiritual path, and we get to um, make adult, grown-up decisions about what we need and what's, what's going to fulfill that need. Uh, I think that's a sign of a maturing human consciousness, and I believe we are maturing. I know there's a lot of signs to the contrary, but I do believe we are, and that 
as just as a child grows up and doesn't need a parent to tell them what to do and how to do it, uh, our entire species is maturing so that we can make wise decisions without some authority figure um, threatening punishment if we don't. Well, and that's what you talk about with the new American spirituality versus the old. The old is you have the one person, the guru, the leader, and this is the only way to do things. That's right. Um, I, I, uh, I don't think that, and in, and in some ways that's a very old patriarchal way of mm-hmm. looking at things, uh, where um, we keep order in society by one person or one way of viewing reality gets to set all the rules. And, you know, that that is a somewhat of an easier way to keep the peace. But if you look around, it hasn't really worked all that well. You know, uh, the feedback of the world is that we need a new way to organize ourselves. And the way of the uh, dominating authority figure has run its course and we need to learn how to um, empower many people and to make decisions that take all beings into account, not only people. I mean, look at the, the earth and the world. Our internet interconnectivity is much more apparent now, and, and somehow we've got to come up a way of being together that honors more than just the status quo. Well, and... Um, I was just, I did an interview just recently and it had to do with media and the, the way that there's so many different choices for media and, um, and also the, the internet has allowed for more grassroots involvement instead of it just being corporate decisions that are decided and then this is what we will watch and how people have the choice of watching, reading, or listening to things that fit their interests. Um, you know, instead of just a few, like right. 20 years ago, you had basically three network channels to watch. Right. That's so different, isn't it? It's so very different. And, um, and it, you know, to find things that fit for your purpose for that time period in your life, because as we grow and change, some of those things may also grow and change. Yes. Now, I want to talk about the biggies and the dailies because I love that. And if you can explain to our listeners the biggies and the dailies. Well, I think you're referring to a a little story I told in one of my books. I'm forgetting which one right now, where um, my youngest son was a a little kid and he was um, having trouble over a period of many weeks of falling asleep at night. I'm sure all of you parents listening know what this is like. You're scrunched up on the side of the bed with your kid waiting for them to fall asleep and they're so afraid of something. And and so finally I tried to get down to the bottom of it and I, I said to him, you know, if you say what you're afraid of, it goes away. And he was so excited. Really? Really it will go away? If you say it, you name it, then it goes away. So finally after a long period of time, he admitted to me what he was afraid of was dying. And I was really sorry that I had told him that if you say it, it goes away. (laughs) Because I then, we came up with a term, and I said, well, sweetie, if you'd been afraid of, like, a monster in the closet, then it would have gone away, because we could have gotten to the bottom of it. Those are the dailies. The things we fear and the obstacles we face that that actually, if worked with skillfully, can actually go away. And then there are the biggies, the big questions in life, like what happens when I die, um, that are something that we join together in a human community of seekers, and we, we ponder these perennial questions, and we learn how to relax some into the mystery of not knowing. There are some things, the biggies, we may never be able to figure out with our puny minds. Mm-hmm. We were given these rather crude tools, our minds, to try to figure out big questions that actually aren't served by trying to think it through. So the, the dailies, you can think them through and get some strategies and overcome them. And then there's the biggies. What a beautiful way to put that to a child especially. 
mm-hmm. with the biggies and the dailies, but even with an adult and to really think about, is this a daily or is this a biggie? Mm-hmm. And I would think that would help with overcoming fear and also to bring the calmness that I hear in your voice. I mean, there are some things that we will never solve. We just don't have the, the tools. I, I often think of us humans as very half-baked creatures. And um, we're, we're, we are able to perceive a lot of the problems that give us anxiety, but we weren't given the tools to solve them. It's like, hey, thanks a lot, creator. <laughs> you, you stopped in the middle. <laughs> and... And the way I have best um, uh, met the biggies has been with this attitude of relaxation and understanding that the point isn't to solve it, but just to learn how to relax into the mystery. In in the Seeker's Guide, there's um, one of my favorite things was um, from, uh, is it Pima Codron? Codron? Pima Chodron. Pima Chodron, thank you. And you quote her as saying, we can stop struggling with what occurs and see its true face without calling it the enemy. Mm-hmm. And um, it helps to remember that our practice is not about accomplishing anything, not about winning or losing, but about ceasing to struggle and relaxing as it is. Yes. You know, um, it's, it's um, in one of those ironies that the problem we identify is this sense of struggling. We're always struggling against life. We wake up as if it's some sort of um, battle to be won. And you can't solve discomfort with struggling by more struggling. You just give up the struggle, and suddenly life, just as it is, is fine, even if it's difficult. Meeting difficulty with struggle is an endless loop of anxiety. But don't you think in our society that that is really praised upon? Oh, you know, about persevering and it's about, oh, just being really tough and and, and pushing through mm-hmm. those barriers. Yes, I do. I think it's a real problem. I mean, it's not that if you're a spiritual seeker, it doesn't mean you turn into some kind of passive wimp and uh-huh. never do anything or let people walk all over you. That's a common misperception. But you can... Um, be very upright and work hard and make difficult decisions without um, the aggressive anxiety that the culture seems to praise. There's a way to be both soft and tough at the same time. It's, there's uh, The Tibetans call it the spiritual warrior, that um, you can wage energetically with the world in a spiritual way um, and that, that's the trick well and I mean I guess uh, even just coming over here I'd gotten this email that kind of bothered me and I started worrying about it and worrying about it and worrying about it and I could feel my energy changing and um, and I just said I have to just let this go worrying about it is not going to change anything It's not going to make things any better or any, well, it can make things worse because my mind can just keep going and going about it. And I need to let it go. And this is something that I'm going to deal with next week because that's when the date of this whole email was about. Right. And and be okay with that. And because of my own, what I have been going through in my own studying, it was I was able to do that at a much quicker rate than maybe a few years ago because in the past I would have been agonizing and agonizing. Right. And, you know, I probably would have had a really difficult time even talking with you because my mind would have been all about this email that and then usually what would happen is in the end it wouldn't have been as big of a deal as my mind had just made it into because it would escalate. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, it's something that it's been a strength that I think I've been able to learn because in the past it was, Oh, I need to be a fighter. I need to be stronger. Cause you know, I was, a, I was a kid that went to school to college in the early nineties. And I want, I so wanted to be like, you know, the kids that went to school in the sixties in college and you know, <laughs> where the, where were the fighters and the feminists and stuff. And I was like, what happened to us? And so I still had that idea that, Oh, if I fight, then it'll be worthy. 
And when I realized when I let go and can control what I can and do and work and that, those things that in the past that I would spend a lot of energy worrying about would work itself out. Not that I was sitting back just staring off into the sky, mm-hmm. but I was using my energy, I guess, more productively. Exactly. Worry is a very um, unintelligent way of approaching the world, and we all suffer from it. But if you if you dissect it and really look at it, just like you just did, and talking about the email you got, and mm-hmm. and really self talk like, will between now and then worrying about it change anything? It actually will change something, but for the worse. Mm-hmm. It'll change you, and make you less prepared and less open and less strong when the date comes along. What's really helped me deal with worrying, it's really kind of, I would say, taken 90% of the fuel away from worry, is I have trained my spiritual muscle to stop taking everything so personally. Mm -hmm. A huge amount of our reaction to what happens is because we think somebody or or the entire world is against us. And it's usually not personal at all. It's about... Uh, people trying to just live their life. And they're not even thinking about you, actually. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to do what they need to do. And the minute you take the personal affront out of a situation, you're granted enormous energy to come to a better conclusion. You're listening to Karen Motokaitis on How She Really Does It. And I'm talking with Elizabeth Lesser. She's the author of The Seeker's Guide and Broken Open. How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow. And she's also the co-founder of the Omega Institute. And with those thoughts of worry, there's a... I love your book because you're very open about yourself, about your strengths and about your weaknesses. And a lot of times when that's not necessarily the case when people write, they just talk about the great things instead of the difficulties. And one of the things that she wrote about was, you know, the the issues at the Omega... um, Center, and um, but you had written to Ram da- da- Das, Ram Das, Ram, Ram Das, Ram Das. Thank yeah. you. And oh, and you, I'll just go ahead and read it. And it said um, he was a board of director, and he was aware of some of the contentious struggles within the organization. And you faxed him something at the bottom of the fax. You scrawled, "Do you think I'm retarded? I keep dealing with the same stuff with the same people year after year." You'd think I'd make some progress. How is this edit? Please approve or make further suggestions. And he faxed his response later that day. We all seem retarded in that we live again and again the phenomenal realities our minds project. Only awareness is at peace with these eternal repetitions. Hang in there and be gentle with yourself. Your rewrite looks great. Thanks. What that what that little exchange shows to me, shows up, shines a light on, is one of the most profound secrets in the world. And that's how in keeping our vulnerable, flawed selves from each other, we miss out on intimacy. True intimacy is based on bringing all of ourselves to the table. If we just bring our happy, smiley face self, our always strong self, then we get that same brittleness back from the other person. It's like, um, you know, the, this whole law of attraction thing, the whole mm-hmm. secret thing that maybe some of you all have heard about. Um, I actually... I've experienced throughout my life the law of attraction, but not in the way those books wrote about it, Mm -hmm. that if you bring your whole self into a relationship, let's say you're walking in the street and you meet someone, an old friend, and they say, how are you? And you go, oh, I'm great. And then, how are you? And then that person says, oh, I'm great. And then you both walk away and you feel sort of like, how come she's so great? How come she doesn't have problems in life? And you, you, you miss out on really connecting because we all have problems. Mm-hmm. How could we not? It's really, we've born into this world without an instruction book, 
and we're making our way through it, and all of us have tragedies befall us. All of None of us get served a perfect life, and that's the point of being human. The point of being human is we show up as eternal souls, and we get this body that's going to die, and we learn how to navigate through this particular realm, this experience called human life. And if we keep pretending to each other that there's nothing wrong with us, we never learn. And we never get to have uh, fellow travelers to really travel with us. So um, I wrote that little story. That's one of the lessons embedded in it to, you know, please don't hide out and pretend you're perfect because then you don't get to really have friends. Um, And uh, also to reveal that, that... even people like Ram Das, who some of you may know of, a great American spiritual teacher, even he knows he's retarded. <laughs> and we're all, um, we're all not working with a perfect deck of cards. And, and that's a great gift we can give to each other. Those are opportunities for growth and to, to grow. And because we, you're right, we all, I don't know if it's something that's fed to us in our society. Um, I do know, you know, our kids are taught to, you know, to be a good student and you have to follow the rules. You have to get good grades. And th- I do think there's something wrong with a little bit with our educational plan, just the way that it's set up. And, you know, if, if you make mistakes, you get a bad grade. And, um, and so this whole idea of perfectionism and then, you know, the pressure that's for young females or even for women in general with the media and images and whatnot. And, to realize that everyone has struggles and they may be different in their different times and their different kinds of struggles, but we all do. And isn't that where we really grow and really learn is when we have those struggles? Yeah, that, that tends to be the way humans learn. It might, it would be kind of nice if it wasn't, (laughs) but it tends to be the way we learn. And, and the sooner we can learn that, to keep an open heart when times are tough and to reveal our full self to each other, the sooner we can learn that, we actually attract um, healthier, happier experiences in our life. By fighting against the trouble, we actually attract more trouble. And by accepting what comes our way, we flow, it flows through us much more quickly. The dam is no longer dammed up by resistance. Experiences come, we learn from them, they leave, and we, we um, develop an, an enormous amount of courage and um, exuberance about life when we stop resisting and thinking it shouldn't be this way. It's not supposed to be this way. Well, guess what? It is supposed to be this way. Get with the program, and and you, um, lo and behold, the more you can accept what your problems, the sooner they go away. The the sooner the more you can accept your problems, the sooner they go away. Yeah, it's resisting problems. It's resisting trouble. It's like we're in a stream, and we're already in the stream, and it's flowing in a certain direction. You can either spend the whole day swimming against the stream Mm -hmm. and just tire yourself out, or you can get on your back and just float, float with the river, and let it take you where it's going and teach you what it has to teach you. And and soon enough, you'll wash up upon a new shore um, ready to face the next bend in the river. You know, I used to think that swimming up the stream showed how tough I was and how strong I was and how I could overcome. And what I found from that is that it just, it started to affect my health. It it was not, yes, I was strong. I could persevere and I could make it through, but there was such a loss of energy and it it affected my own body, affected my mind, my soul, everything. And when I stopped doing that and did try not that I always do, but I try to, to flow with the river, the, the amount that I can do and the way my energy flows is, is boundless. And sometimes there are situations in life where you really do have to swim against the mm-hmm. river. And for those few times, 
because most of the time that we're fighting the river, we don't have to. For the few times that you really do need to put up a grand fight, you will be much less tuckered out if you choose well the times to get in there and fight and the times when fighting is just totally counterproductive. So, um, you know, I love the title of your radio show and one of the ways of how she can do it, how we can all do it, is to get really wise about the things that are sent to us that we can we, we should flow with and the few things that are sent to us that call on our warrior spirit to put up a big old stink. Yeah, and and it's knowing the difference. Mm-hmm. Knowing when 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 we need to step up and really fight through it and when it's not necessary mm-hmm. and it's going to be less um I don't want to say productive, but that's um because I don't want it to be about a thing. It's, it's really helpful to people if we, like, talk about real things. Okay. So um, let's say you're working somewhere and the boss is a total <laughs> jerk. I mean, like such a jerk, like a destructive jerk. Mm-hmm. And, and your life is really being made pretty miserable about it. Well, um... You can spend your entire time fighting against that system. And in, and at some point, you got to decide, is this going to work? Is, is my fighting doing anything? And if the answer is no, that's when it takes the courage to say, I'm not going to be here anymore. I'm, I'm going to accept that this is the... Um, this is the reality of this situation I'm in. I can either accept what it's like and work here and make little changes among the people that I do work with and bring my enthusiasm into this flawed system, or I can say I'm not going to be here anymore and leave. But most of the time what we're doing is fighting against reality. And thinking by flailing around in the river, it's going to do something. When actually it's only going to make you tired. So constantly we're faced with this choice. Do I um, fight it or do I go with it and, and, and accept it for what it is or do I leave? And, and there's not a right or wrong, but um, it's staying stuck in fighting reality that's like a really un unhappy way to live so either accepting this is the environment and making the best of it making peace with that that is what it is with that or or leaving now every now and then the revolutionary in us um gets called to act and um whether we we do that politically or within our personal relationships there are times when stepping up and saying, like, no, this has to change. But we've got to be wise about it because sometimes um, the way we go about trying to change things is really just the flailing in the river type. So we've got to be wise about what we can change and what we can't. We either have to accept it or leave it. Well, and I think a specific story for you would have been in college and doing the protests and the war and the peace movement. And how when you first started, what it was, and then one of the things that um, bothered you later was that here you were on a movement for peace, but how aggressive some people's behaviors were. Yeah. Um, It's so important that we walk our talk all the way down to our very own self. And at Omega, we've often offered retreats for peace activists because we've noticed that a lot of people who work in the social change arena are actually really very angry and very unhappy. Trying to spread peace and joy by being angry and unhappy is is a recipe for ineffectuality. You you look at the great peacemakers and, and change agents in the world, let's say Martin Luther King, 
he was a deeply spiritual man whose very being radiated peace and radiated openness and inclusion. Therefore, people stood up and paid attention when he was speaking because they thought, like, this guy is not a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. He walks his talk. I'm going to follow him. So it's, it's important in our own lives to um, be the change that we want to see in the world, as Gandhi said. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about that this morning. Um, how, much, how important was motherhood with your journey for this? Oh, well, motherhood is my favorite part of the journey. Um, my children are grown up now. Uh, I had my kids really young. We kind of grew up together, I always tell them. Um, but motherhood brings all of the kind of pie-in-the-sky lessons right down to earth every day. It's always in your face. You know, if you're, let's say you're practicing, like, I want to be more present in all my interactions. You read the books and you meditate and it all sounds really Uh good. You come home and you're tired and your little kid wants you to read the same book over and over. (laughs) There's your spiritual path right there. You know, can you show up fully for this little pint-sized spiritual teacher and, and bring your whole self there? without distraction. There's so many distractions today. You know, you can be talking to your kid, but you're really emailing, and they feel it. Kids sense what's real. They, they're amazing mirrors for our own uh, spiritual awareness. So parenthood for me was, was um, a, a joy and a terror, you know, um, things are everything has a shadow uh-huh. so for me motherhood was such a bright bright star but it had a pretty dark shadow too it was hard and then i was a single mother for a while and that was really hard and um then they became teenagers talk about hard <laughs> um so yeah to me parenthood was like the um the place i got to really uh, practice my beliefs and so is work so is running a business both of them have been equally um, grist for the mill I'm wrapping up our discussion with Elizabeth Lesser author of The Seeker's Guide and co-founder of the Omega Institute you're listening to How She Really Does It with Corinne Motokaitis and that what you just said is so important because so often you know, our lives are so busy and we're going about and it's like, oh, you know, reading this book or I want to follow this path. But learning how to incorporate that and doing it where we're raising our kids, being present in that moment when it may not be, you know, the most ideal, like if a kid is screaming or crying or whatnot. That or, is the path. <laughs> that, you know, the, the lessons themselves are actually very simple and it's the same thing over and over. You know, it's like show up fully with the person you're with. Practice inner peace. You know, you really you really don't need much more information. The hard thing is how to put it into practice. Uh-huh. And um, for if you're a mom, that is your path. Why? Because that's your path. Uh-huh. That's what you're walking on. You're not walking somewhere else. That And, you know, I, I had my first kid when I was 22, so I didn't really ever have a different path. Uh Um, You know, uh, I was able to learn a lot through, you don't have to go to exotic places is what I'm trying to say. There's nothing more exotic than your own home. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and because, yeah, it's that idea that, oh, I have to go on this retreat or I have to go here or I have to go there. And it's, no, you can practice it in your life at this moment. This morning, I was trying to get ready for the show. I was on the computer and my daughter came in and she was trying to do some of her reading and speech. She's six. She's in kindergarten. And there was a big difference when I wasn't present with her and when I was. Absolutely. A miracle. It's amazing. And then when I was present with her, the sense of calm. That between both of us, 
and how much I could appreciate her and just see just how, how spectacular she is yeah. came through. And then actually, it, this is what I was talking about previously, not fighting the river. Actually, you probably moved through both of you getting your needs met much quicker mm-hmm. if you were, no, I'll get to you later, honey, no, no, and then it turned into a fight, and then she cried, and then she couldn't find her shoes, and then you couldn't get her to school. People think it would take too much time to be present with each other. It actually takes less time. So, Elizabeth, our listeners are listening right now, and they're saying, okay, but what if, you know, in the ideal world we can meet our child's needs first, but what if we're, something is happening at that moment where we cannot be present with our child for the next five minutes because we have to, whether it's, you know, you maybe you're cooking dinner or something's on the stovetop and you have to, for safety reasons, or just so making sure the food doesn't get burnt, you can't. Or maybe you're on the phone with the doctor. Some, something's going on where that has to take presence over priority. Right. Over. Then you say very firmly and clearly, I'm cooking dinner now. I can't be with you. You know, that's also great because that's true. It's when you're actually with them fully and there is nothing else happening that you're not with them. Like you are lying in bed reading to them, but your mind is somewhere else and you're, you're like, can't wait that she falls asleep so you can just get up and go do it. That's the moment to practice presence. When you are with them, be with them. When you're not with them, be clear about it. And when a child gets its needs met half the time, that's plenty. It's when you're pretending to meet the child's needs and you're not really that there's this sense then that they need you all the time. Because they're never getting filled Cause up. they're never getting fed. They're getting half fed all the time. Better to feed them fully in little bits and then do what you need to do than to constantly be resisting being present all the time. And the other thing that I find is that when... I, I teach my children how to get my attention. In some ways, sometimes it's not the most positive way. You know, it, it could be the screaming or the crying because then I'll finally be present versus me being more proactive and being present. Right. Feeding that, getting that taken care of, and then establishing the boundaries of, right. no, this is the time that I can or this is the time that I can't. And this is when I can come back to being present with you. And to be real gentle on ourselves and forgiving, parenthood is basically an impossible task. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you're not going to do it perfectly, and you're going to fail all the time. And that's okay. You know the phrase, the good enough mother, mm-hmm. the good enough parent. That's good. That's, that's what we aim for because you can't be perfect in human dynamics. It involves two people, and none of us are perfect, and we were put on this earth to learn from each other, and sometimes we learn through friction. So be easy on yourself, all you parents. Well, and I think that's something that, you know, throughout your book, and I've heard you speak, and um, it seems to be a common message with you is do the best that you can and try, and then try to learn from it, and but don't beat yourself up. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't have that worry and... Um, where you're bringing that negative energy out. Right, right. It doesn't serve anything. So you had three boys, is that correct? Yeah. And how do you remain so calm? <laughs> well, they're all in their 20s. <laughs> um, uh, well, you know, at different times in my, in my parenting journey, um, had you come to my house, you would not ask that question. But um, I, I do think that spiritual practice, and by that I mean some kind of taking a little time each day to yourself and meditating, learning a meditation practice or learning a prayer practice or a body-centered practice like yoga, even when you're in the midst of raising three rambunctious boys, I think it's critical I don't think that inner peace comes just by wanting it. I, I do think it helps to have some kind of practice. Meditation happened to be mine. I love it. I think it's so valuable. 
even if it's five minutes a day where you close the door and you breathe and get some books or some tapes and learn what it's all about. Um, and then you can return to it in tiny bits and pieces throughout the day. It helped me enormously. And as did, I consider psychotherapy a spiritual practice, kind of getting to the roots of some of my own reactive behavior, why I do what I do. That helped me deconstruct some of my behavior. I'm, I'm all for that. Um, so self, self-awareness is, is huge in staying calm. Well, Elizabeth, I have so much more that I'd love to talk to you about, but we have run out of time. And I do thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. It was it was great having you. And there was one part, I have all these, I, you should, my book has all sorts of post-it notes, and I've gotten to the point where there are color-coded post-it notes because there are all these different things. But one of the things, um, I'm just going to read this real quick. And you talk about meditation because I want to do a huge topic about that, but And you talked about as you practice, your goals may become more and more like the horizon, alluring yet ever in the distance. It doesn't matter if your goals are pie in the sky, if you practice your jump shot so that one day you may fly like Michael Jordan, or if you sing in the local choir so that you'll be good enough to do backup for Aretha Franklin. It's enough to know that magic is possible for a human being. If someone else can do it, so might I, you think. It's that... It's this kind of hope that keeps you going, even as you surrender to the more realistic boundaries of your own capacity. That passage there was one of my favorites, and it really inspired me. So thank you very much, Elizabeth. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much. Okay. We've had Elizabeth Lesser from the Omega Institute. She's one of the co-founders, and she's also the author of The Seeker's Guide, where I read that passage. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to, you've been listening to How She Really Does It on KDRT LP in Davis, California, 101.5 FM. You can catch the replays for this show on this Sunday from 1 to 2 p.m. and Wednesday from 9 to 10 p.m. You can also email us at howshe at gmail.com or visit our website, www.howshereallydoesit.com, for our podcasts. No matter 